Hey everyone, and welcome to the seven innings podcast. I'm Amanda Scarborough. And today on the show, we have Michelle Smith, Kayla bro, Madison Shipman, Jenny Dalton Hill, and Jen Schroeder today. Uh, today we're going to be recapping this past weekend. We had so many top-notch games that we had unexpected run rules, upsets, extra innings all over the country. There was something happening. So we're going to break it all down. And we'll also talk about replay review advancements in our sport so far this season that you'll notice when you're watching games on our air this season. We'll preview Arkansas, Alabama coming up this weekend. And of course, we'll shag some stats. Let's go to number one on the lineup card right away. The horns and tide super interesting weekend in Austin um, this weekend because Alabama, Texas, Wisconsin, and Texas state were all in the same tournament. Um, I was calling these games in Austin and it really felt like a regional. I mean, four quality, quality opponents um, and maybe even better than a regional with the level of play that was there, but high level of teams all in one place. It was awesome. And there were upsets all around. So Texas finished with a three and two record and lost their last two games. Wisconsin also finished with a three and two record. Texas state finished with a two and two record with back-to-back top 10 wins over Alabama and Texas. And then Alabama finished with a one in three record. Their only win was an 11 inning win over Texas on Saturday night with a 15 strikeout performance by Montana Fouts, who went the distance. But Kayla, I, I think the glaring stat here, uh, just from my opinion, is maybe Alabama going one and three this weekend. But uh, what were your takeaways from the weekend? What do you see happening with Alabama? Yeah, well, first of all, I think you're so right. It was a postseason atmosphere. You could feel it and you could feel it from the energy of the players every single inning all weekend long. So that in and of itself was so fun to watch. And, you know, for Alabama, I thought if you isolate just the Texas games, I think if you're Alabama, you walk away and you think, wow, it's a really good weekend. We split with Texas on the road. Um, You got really good innings from Montana Fouts, especially in game two. But then you add in those other games against Texas State and Wisconsin, and then all of a sudden your mentality has changed. And then you go away and you say, hey, we did not take care of business when we needed to. We didn't get the wins that we needed to against lesser opponents. And um, But, you know, overall, Alabama, I, I, I kind of want to just talk about the Texas game for a second, Amanda, because game one, I thought the Texas, the young stars of that Texas team, Viv Martinez, Leanne Good was out like amazing all weekend long, but they just took over their maturity stood out to me. They just had really quality ABs and they were going up against Fouts. I mean, she's a fifth year senior pitcher that has the notoriety of being Montana Fouts and they were not phased at all. So was really impressed with how they came out game one, Estelle check and relief. It's not like all these moments. It's about these moments, right? Estelle check was lights out in, in relief, Amanda. And how you handle momentum in those type of game matters so much. Check came in and was like, nope, we're not losing this game. On the flip side of things, Alabama, when Montana Fouts was throwing in game two, she threw 11 innings. But after the fifth inning, after her team made some errors, after the defense struggled behind her and the Texas came back to tie it up 3-3, there was something that clicked for Fouts. She was like, I am not losing this ball game. She put the team on her back and uh, she retired the next 12 batters after Texas put up three runs against her, Amanda. It's just so impressive. 
Yeah. I thought her rebound in that second game was really something special and it proved truly why she's one of the, one of the best pitchers in the country with her ability to make adjustments. Texas was on her in the first game. They were looking for something up. They were looking for something 70 miles an hour and they had more discipline against her too. So her ability to literally take the game into her own hands um, in game two and throw the, a complete game against one the, a top 10 offense in Texas is something super special to watch because you just don't see complete games that much. I mean, I think Texas used three pitchers in almost every game that they played this weekend. And, and you mentioned uh, Estelle check, but all their relief outings of their pitchers, I thought were really something special. And I think that we haven't gotten a chance to watch Texas play a lot um, because oftentimes they play on Longhorn network and several people don't have that channel and they're unable to watch them, but you guys, Texas has speed. They have athleticism and they're really, really a good team and a pretty deep pitching staff. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to Texas state who got those top 10, uh, wins against Alabama, Texas, Jessica Mullins, national pitcher of the week. Um, and some publications, she got both of those wins, both of those top 10 wins. And she pitched super well this weekend and the Wisconsin, despite committing 11 errors in five games, they still found a way to win three games, including Kayla Conwent, uh, hitting a home run off of Montana Fouts. So, um, all in all, a great weekend. Did you have any more takeaways, Kayla, that you wanted to uh, throw in there? Uh, Alabama had eight errors on the weekend. That's that's rough. I mean, Wisconsin had more, but for Alabama, you just can't have eight errors. And I think the last thing that I will say, I was disappointed from an alumni perspective that Alabama had to throw Montana Fouts against Wisconsin that next day. She pitched 11 innings for you the night before, and you can't do enough to keep her out of that game. And then she goes and gives it up the home run to Conwent like that. She deserves better. I think that will be a, a talking point moving into this weekend. Montana Fouts pitched in five of the six games that Alabama had this week. And Michelle, I know that we'll be paying attention to that this weekend against Arkansas. Uh, moving on to number two, the Cowgirls and the Knowles going up against each other in Stillwater. This was such a good series, and I feel like I had a little bit of everything. So Oklahoma State ended up winning two of three against Florida against Florida State, despite FSU committing five errors in game one. How often do you guys do you? win a game, even though you committed five errors and the other team didn't commit any errors. I just think that that's wild. So Florida state won that game seven to five in a three and a half hour, seven inning game on Friday, three and a half hours for those people that are saying it's rare for a seven inning game to go over three hours. You're wrong. Then Oklahoma state won game two and a five inning run rule nine to one. Then in game three, Oklahoma state had a come from behind win, scoring three runs in the bottom of the sixth inning to win three to two Madison. What are our takeaways from this top five series in Stillwater? You know, I was really excited when I saw this series on the schedule, just because you've got two really uh, power teams going up against each other. But I was curious to see how these teams were going to use their pitching stabs. I think when you're in a three game series, that's when you have to be really strategic about how you use people. And I wasn't surprised that Oklahoma State started a different pitcher in every single game, went with Maxwell in game one. What I did think that Florida State did a good job of was laying off of the drop ball that she was throwing down in the dirt for balls, which forced her have to go more to that curveball rise ball combination and they were ready for it. I don't know if you guys saw that home run that Michaela Edenfield hit, but I'm pretty sure it's still in orbit somewhere. That thing went so far. Uh, I was just really impressed with the way that they were able to come out and, and attack that rise ball. But then for Oklahoma State to rebound the way that they did, 
Uh, going up against Sander Cock, I thought that they were rolling over on balls in game one, but in game two, adjusted with Mac Leonard on the on this in the circle, throwing more drop balls and put up a four spot in in inning one. And I think that's what you need to do after losing in game one to be able to bounce back and try to work your way back into the series is to put up some big numbers early. And it was an exciting series going back and forth. Saw some offense, saw maybe some not great defense, but both of these teams capitalizing on it. Um, but it definitely had me engaged uh, all three games. And I know, Jen, that you had your eyes on this series as well. Yeah, Amanda, you mentioned Florida State's five errors, and you wonder, how do you still win a game with five errors? Well, Kelly Maxwell walked seven batters in that game, so that's how you even that out. For me, what really stood out, I feel like I learned more about Florida State this series than Oklahoma State, despite the fact that Oklahoma State took the series. It really stood out to me that after that Enfield bomb that you mentioned, they go up 4-0. Sandercock gets pulled from the game as soon as Oklahoma State answers back. She gets pulled. Guess what happens? Three and a half hours, a lot of offense, a lot of errors. Sander Cock is able to re-enter at the end of that game and get the win. And so for me, I feel like I learned so much about Florida State and how they're able to answer back. Of course, they didn't get the series win. Oklahoma State comes and beats them 9-1 to in a run rule win the next day and then a close game for the rubber match, 3-2 to get the win. But it impressed me that I feel like Florida State is going to learn a lot from this early season. And we could very well see this matchup be a super regional or even world series matchup. I would not be surprised if we saw this exact matchup in a few months down the road. And I think Florida state is going to learn so much from this three game series, Maddie. I always feel like Florida state is the team that just kind of has that clutch factor to them. And I know, yes, they lost the series this weekend. I thought Oklahoma state, like we mentioned, made those adjustments, but I still feel like when I look up and down Florida state's offense, there are so many batters that I circle that I go, Oh, I do not want her up on uh, with the game on the line. I do not want her up with the game on the line. And I think we saw examples of that, especially in game one, we mentioned the Enfield home run, but how many times have we seen somebody like Kaylee Harding come through for the Seminoles? And I think that's, something that Florida State historically does really well. They have different things each year that make their team unique. They find those things out in the early part of the season, and then they use it to their advantage when it comes time for the postseason. Absolutely. And now one, two, and a lot of the early rankings has Oklahoma at one and Oklahoma State at two. So we've got a little bedlam matchup, right? One and two. Looking at Oklahoma's weekend, they played Mississippi State and they had two dominant wins. They're playing today against Florida State. This is obviously recorded on a Tuesday. So by the time this comes out, we'll have already known the answer. Maddie and I were texting before, and she's taken, you know, a real lofty call of thinking that Oklahoma is going to win this game tonight. Okay, guys, brace yourself. It's a bold <laughs> take, I know. But one thing to know is Grace Lyons didn't make the trip to Stillwater. And so Tiare Jennings played shortstop this weekend. So another thing just kind of to track is, is Grace Lyons going to be back in the lineup tonight? We'll have to, we'll have to wait to see. All right. Great job, ladies. Really good uh, recap of the cowgirls uh, and the Knowles. We're going to roll on down to uh, the third spot in the lineup card. And we're going to talk about the battle of the bears. Um, how about the Cal UCLA series? Some interesting stuff going on there. Um, I think um, JDH, you and I will dig deep into this. Um, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Game one went to UCLA four to nothing. Brooke Yanez got the start. Uh, I thought that was interesting as well that Megan Framo did not. Framo did throw one inning uh, in that game, as did Lauren Shaw. So Yanez went five innings. Um, 
It was interesting, though, that UCLA left five, uh, excuse me, they left 12 runners on base in that 4-0 win. So um, the, the game that intrigues me the most, though, is the game they lost, 8 to nothing, a five-inning run rule. Um, Taylor Tinsley, the freshman, started that game, and, and honestly, I thought she was doing a great job. She ended up getting pulled uh, very early in the game, and this is the series of events that I think that, that set it off. So UCLA had the bases loaded in the top of the third inning. So there was a pal base hit, a pull a base hit, and Brady walked. So with the bases loaded, then Palacio pops up to first base, and then Megan Grant hit into a double play. One, two, three, double play to end the inning. Bottom of the third inning, Tinsley goes out, leadoff double for Cal. And immediately she gets pulled. Faremo comes in. The question is, is Faremo warm? Because then immediately Cal bunts, they get one out. And then Faremo gives up four straight hits, a single, a double, another single, and then McKenna Smith hit a home run off of her. So a third of an inning, Megan Faremo gave up five runs. Only four were charged to her. One was charged to Tinsley. But the question for me is, I think that Tinsley was just pulled too early. UCLA then comes back and wins game three. So, Jenny, what else did you see in that? I, I just still find that game two just incredible, the series of events. Well, and you have to tip your cap to Cal for how well they came out and capitalized on a moment that UCLA handed them. It is a first win over UCLA for Cal in over a decade. I mean, this is kind of an unprecedented win. Yanez started game one, you mentioned it, through five innings. She also threw a complete game in game three. They leaned heavily on her in this series. And then short leashes for the other three pitchers, Shaw, Faremo, and Tinsley. My question mark in this one is, is there something wrong with Faremo? Because her outings on the weekend, she only threw one and a third innings. You mentioned the home run, the, the hits that she gave up. But for me, that is a, that's a question mark. What's going on with Faremo? We know her as a shutdown pitcher that is able to come in and throw lights out. That was definitely not a good weekend for her. Um, but you have to... Look at what Cal was able to do in that game too. Haley Archer and Sona Halajian able to combine for just one strikeout, three walks, and four hits against UCLA, a team that absolutely crushes the ball. And they kept Maya Brady quiet. She, they, they walked her. Well, I'd walk her too. She's so good. She will hurt you. But go ahead and put her on and see what everybody else can do. So just four hits for UCLA in that loss. And in that game, Cal had nine hits. Six were for extra bases, and three of them were home runs. So they definitely took it to UCLA. Yeah, so it is interesting, Jenny. The other thing that, that kind of stood out to me is that in the series, UCLA, they scored 14 runs. They had 27 hits but they left 28 runners on base. So we talk about their pitching, the surprise, right? Yanez was good. What happened with Faremo, Shaw, some of the others. Um, but for me, it's, you know, the runs that maybe they weren't as productive as what maybe the coaching staff was comfortable with. And maybe that's why Taylor Tinsley got the early hook. You know, I'm a fan of letting the young kids work their way out of jams. And in fact, she really wasn't even in a jam. I think she got pulled because the offense wasn't scoring runs. And, 
you know, I think sometimes it's easy for coaches to panic when you do have an ace in the pen to try to, to throw them in. I think it's also important to understand how long does it take your, your pitchers to get warm. We saw it with Montana Fouts. She came into some games and uh, immediately got hit. So I think it's really important for pitchers to figure out how much time they need in order to be warm, especially if there's a possibility that these some of these young pitchers have a uh, are going to have a quick hook. So interesting weekend for sure, UCLA. We'll have Washington coming up uh, this coming weekend and then the following Oregon. So um, some, we'll have to keep our eye on uh, Megan Framo and see how she's doing uh, and making sure she doesn't have injuries. Yeah, a lot of aces to keep our eyes on. I feel like this weekend, the, the aces all across the country, Kat Sandercock, Framo, Kelly Maxwell, Montana Fouts, like got hit a little bit. So it was an interesting weekend for aces and uh, not a good weekend for ERAs that I think went up this past weekend. All right, moving to number four, let's talk about replay review because there's going to be a lot of games on our air from a ton of different conferences coming up in March, April, and then of course, moving into May. So uh, we thought it was important to kind of break the replay review down because it's a little bit different in every conference and it's confusing for us as analysts. So we know it's confusing for you as a viewer too, when you're able to watch all these games. So in 2021, replay review was an experimental review, really only done in some conference tournaments. In 2022, so last season, it was the first season that you were able to start to see it in actual games besides conference conference tournaments. This year is um, more the same, that every conference is still doing it a little bit different. You're not just going to see it at conference tournaments. So while you're watching, it's important to know what you're going to get from every school or conference that you're watching because it truly can vary. So the ACC mandated it, but the school can choose what technology they want to use within the ACC game. So it's mandated. They're going to have it, but each school can do it a little bit differently. And the big 10 it's optional still, which blows my mind. I don't know if it blows your guys's mind, but it's still optional. There might be a game that has it. There might be a conference series that doesn't have it. So it's it's series to series. The big 12 mandated it, but it goes back to also optional technology. The school can do what they want. Here's where it gets really interesting with the PAC and with the SEC. The PAC 12 last year didn't have replay. This year, they have made a huge investment. First, they're going to have a off-field replay official at every site. So there's going to be the crew that works the actual game itself, the umpires, and there's going to be a, re a replay official at every game that is just off of the field. Uh, there's going to be at every single game, eight optical zoom cameras that are static and ev at every single site that will be exactly the same at every pack 12 site. Um, and this is through DV sports. And if the game is being broadcasted, they can use not only the static cameras, but they can also use the broadcast cameras to take a look. So the conference in the pack has made a significant investment and, and big move there. Going to wrap it up with the sec, just talking about the power five conferences. Um, sec has a centralized center a multi-million dollar video review center in, in Birmingham at the SEC headquarters, state of the art. Uh, when they look at replay in an SEC conference matchup, it is being sent to that center. A different set of eyes looks at it. They review the play and then they call, they let the, the umpires in the field know what they've decided. 
So that is what the SEC used last year, but they've made an additional investment with what's called O2O technology, official to official technology, where the officials can speak to each other on the field. They have earpieces that you'll notice whenever you're watching the game. They can speak to each other on the field and they can speak back to Birmingham if a play is under review. So and that if a play is under review, Birmingham looks at it and just tells them in their earpiece and it's done super quickly. And on top of the O2O technology, they also have are able to use stadium microphones that right now in five of the stadiums you can publicly announce like a football game like you're watching a football game they publicly announce what's being reviewed the outcome and then you quickly move on and you guys i've talked for a while now but i think it's important to go through each of them i watched arkansas and AM. There was a 34 second review because of how quickly they were able to get it done with the o2o technology uh and with the centralized review uh place in, in Birmingham. So what, what are you guys seeing? And just what are your general thoughts on where we're at with replay review really just in its second year? I just have a quick question that I feel like if I'm wondering it, maybe listeners are wondering, and you guys may have the answer. You mentioned the big 10 being optional. Who decides it? Is it the head coaches and how quickly ahead of time are they deciding it? Is it right before the game? Is it every Michigan game says yes to replay? Do you know? I think it's just, I think every school is going to be different. So every one school might have it, one school might not. And so I think if Michigan has, I'm just using an example, I don't know for sure. If Michigan has it and Minnesota doesn't, then both the school, both the, the coaches decide if the series is at Michigan, all right, let's use it. But you do not have to have it like in the, in the other conferences, um, which it, it just like, the, the big 10, it, it just seems like it's behind, uh, the sec clearly seems like they're leading the way. And I, I feel like the PAC 12 making the big investment here when they didn't have it at all is, is huge news. Kayla. Yeah. What I like about the sec and the PAC 12, what they're doing is the consistency factor. Not only are they elevating their reviews to a really high level, uh, PAC 12 going with the, you know, technology piece and, you know, it was kind of like they're late to the game. So they're going to bring in really high level technology. They probably learned from a lot of other conferences who adopted the replay review earlier, and they're trying to learn from that. And so they've gone to um, an extra umpire review on site per game. Uh, for the SEC, I just got to say, I agree with you. We uh, The Texas A&M review um, at Arkansas was awesome. The PA system, the ump turns it on. You got crowd engagement. You heard booze because it felt like big time. And I love that. I think it's a fantastic idea. That's going to be a policy that's going to be in play at every single school in the SEC next year. And again, I just think it's a better opportunity for fans to have a clear picture of what's going on, because that's the biggest question when we go under review in the last couple of years, what are we reviewing and why? And then you get an answer and you're like, well, how, how come it was this? Wait a second on the review. It looks different than what they're telling me. I'm really confused. This is going to help fans and us as broadcasters too a lot. No doubt, Kayla. It has been difficult when you sit in a booth and you have you, you're you have a pretty good idea of what's being reviewed, but you're not always confident. I'll say I was in the ACC this last week calling the Virginia Tech North Carolina series. We had reviews that were taking forever because in the ACC, there's the umpires are still manipulating their, their own screens. They're pulling up their own images. So not only do they get the get the challenge from the coach, they walk down to wherever this technology is they have to pull up the images themselves they have to manipulate the images themselves 
and it took a long time. I am really sad for the umpires that get thrown into that situation. But I will say coaches are going to be able to use this much like a football coach uses it to ice a kicker. If you've got a big hitter coming up and you want to be able to, you know, make them think about this at bat, maybe a little bit longer, 100%, I'm going to a challenge or a review. It may be some bogus play, but it's going to make the hitter lose their rhythm before they step into the box. So I can see coaches using it as an advantage to be able to slow pace of play because these reviews in the ACC are taking a really long time. A couple of reminders to Jenny. Uh, that's really good input is that sometimes you'll see umpires go off of the field when you're watching a game. Sometimes they stay on the field. And then sometimes even the views that you're looking at when you are a fan watching the game are different angles than what the umpire is looking at. So you might see a view watching the game with us as we're calling it. That's like, oh yeah, yeah. She's for sure safe or for sure out. But the umpire sees completely different views that it might not have that indisputable, indisputable video evidence to be able to over return it. So just some things to keep in mind. And also I wanted to add to that as a reminder, you cannot review out of the box, leaving early tag ups on fly balls, illegal pitches and check swings. Because I think a lot of fans just are always wondering like, Oh, she's out of the box. Like, why can't they look at that? And you can't Jen, did you want to um, offer a little bit more on why the pack changed? Yeah, I can tell you guys a little story. I was talking to Kelly Inouye Perez about this. And Amanda, you mentioned that the Pac-12 did not have any review last year. And so this is a very dramatic change for them. So last year, UCLA gets to postseason, obviously. And Kelly I, the head coach of UCLA, has no idea that one, she could actually use replay or two, how to use replay. She had no idea, which to me is just unbelievable that as a head coach, you don't know that you can now use re replay, but the Pac-12 was very far behind. So the head coaches, all female head coaches went to their conference and said, we need to be better. This is not okay. We need to be better. And what happened was obviously now the pack has this massive investment in replay, all of these cameras at each site. So it was the head coaches really vocalizing how far behind they were and that they needed to be better. And so I love seeing this in the conference personally. Yeah. And I think when you think about benefits to it, obviously it's, it's nice in a, a, a big moment in the game to be able to look at a play that is potentially deciding the outcome of the game and be able to get the call right. So that's obviously a benefit to it. But what I've noticed too on the field is that the coaches just don't argue as much because they have the ability to then just go look at it. So instead of get, like just everybody's just a little bit more calmer in the games because they know that, okay, well, if you're upset about a, a call, just replay it, like review it, challenge it and go to, so nobody has to feel like they have to get worked up as much. Does that happen? Of course, still. Yes. But I, I just feel like overall coaches can focus on coaching. Umpires can focus on umpiring and then we review it and nobody has to get as worked up as, as back in the old days. So, um, that's our replay review. Um, Michelle, I think that we can, uh, move on. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, last night when I was calling the uh, mic'd up Monday, there was a play at second base. Uh, it was a steal and um, they were going to re replay review it. And literally we just started playing and I, I asked our producer, I'm like, did they, did they review that? And they're like, oh yeah, they re reviewed it already. It literally was less than 20 seconds. And I was like smoking. This is awesome. All right. You know, she was safe. Let's go. <laughs> Let's pitch. So 
Good stuff. All right, let's go ahead and slide down into the five spot. And we're going to talk about the Pac-12 rivalry series. And uh, Jenny and Jen, you guys are going to dig deep into this. Washington won two of three against Oregon. Arizona took two of three against ASU. They outscored them 20 to nothing in the first two games. Ouch. Uh, and how about Stanford? They, uh, they didn't allow a run all weekend. All right, so a lot of good stuff going on in the pack. What do you guys got? Well, I'm going to say that I'm going to give you the nod, Michelle. Smoking might be my favorite like podcast name right now, title. So Same. good, good Same. job. <laughs> I don't know how politically correct it is, but it's still a good one. So um, I'm going to say I looked at the pack as a whole. This is a conference that I'm going to say has the best hitting in the country, top to bottom. When it comes to team that is the best and team that sits at the bottom, they are all hitting very well. They're hitting better than Big 12. Yeah, they are. They're hitting more home runs. The Pac-12 has 230 home runs. There's only nine teams. The Big 12 has 171 home runs and there's seven teams. So right now the Pac-12 is actually hitting 25.56 home runs per team and the Big 12 is hitting 24.4. So yeah, the long ball is definitely reigning supreme in the Pac-12. But when it comes to Stanford, I'm gonna have to say this group didn't play a Pac-12 series this last week. So while it, they were impressive wins, they are 22 and two on the season. They shut out both South Dakota State and Kansas. Combined 20 hits, 15 runs, pitching staff ERA of 1.11. We can throw out all the stats. They didn't play a Pac-12 opponent. So we can say, wow, what an amazing weekend for Stanford. But at the same time, let's give them some opponents that are going to kick their butt and see what really comes out of it. Because South Dakota State, law, they got the win 6-0. They got the win over Kansas 9-0. But they've got Oregon this weekend. And it's going to be a little bit of a different story. Jen, what else is going on? What did you see in the pack? I need to talk about the Oregon Washington absolute hit fest this weekend. It was alumni weekend in Seattle for the Huskies. Our girl, Danielle Lori was there. She was calling remote. So she got to be at the game. Washington was celebrating 30 years of a softball program. Heather Tarr, the most winningest female coach there. All right. If I tell you that a team scored 23 runs on a weekend, I'm assuming you guys are all going to tell me you imagine that that team wins the series, right? Nope. Oregon scores 23 runs and loses the series. UW scores 28 runs. There was a six home run game. It was just, it was a game that I wish, I, I wish I were there. I wish I was in Seattle because it was just long ball, crazy back and forth scores. There was a nine to seven game, an eight to 13 game and an eight to six game. Washington wins the series two games to three but I cannot wait to watch Oregon face Stanford this weekend. All right, Jenny, there was a hit fest in Seattle, but I know you got to talk about your Wildcats outscoring the Sun Devils 20 to 0. What do you got? Well, you talk about the 23 runs and they lose the series. Well, let's go 23 runs and they win the series. Arizona outscored ASU 23 to 4 on the weekend. 30 hits on the weekend for the Wildcats. 10 in each game. And I'm going to, this is the biggest point for me, error-free defense. If you can play error-free, you keep yourself in a ball game. Devin Nets, 
has so much passion in the circle. I know you guys have all seen the fist pump. She definitely owns that circle. Complete game win in one, but got touched up in game three. Allowed three earned runs, but and her bat comes out of the lineup when she's not pitching too. And that's a big deal for the Wildcats. But they need Olivia DiNardo's bat in that DP spot. She's a young freshman that hits in between Carly Scoopin and Allie Skaggs. And that is a really important piece of the puzzle for Arizona. She leads the team in average. And Allie Skaggs, well, you know, she uh, leads the pack in batting average. Or no, she leads the pack in RBI. And that's just kind of what Arizona Wildcats do at second base. You've got to make sure that you lead the pack in the RBI. Who, who are you talking about, Jenny? Is I don't know. Flashback many, many years named ago. Jenny Dalton. You know, one, one last note on Devin Nets before we move on is I feel like her maturity is something that I've really noticed this year in comparison to last year. Arizona State has some really good hitters. Van Hook is leading the country in home runs. She went through them in game one. And I just saw a level of maturity in her that I think has been maybe missing at times. We see her passion. We see her fieriness, her fist pumps. But I'm, I really am going to track that, that maturity factor to see if she can keep Arizona in ball games that they maybe lost last year. We all know they made it to the World Series, but it was touch and go for Arizona last year. We know this, right? And yeah. so that's just something that I'm keeping my eye on. And to your point, I see Devin Nett's has matured in the circle, but I've also seen a more relaxed Caitlin Lowe at the helm. She stepped into some really big shoes trying to take over for Mike Candrea. And last year it got off to a really bumpy start this year. She is more calm. She is more cool. She's more collected and it's fun to watch the Wildcats kind of come into their own. All right. Great job, ladies. That's a uh, good job on the rivalry series in the Pac-12. We're going to roll on down to the sixth spot and talk a little bit about SEC play and what went on uh, over the weekend. Kayla and Maddie, you guys will uh, hop in on this. So um, weren't a lot of brooms out. A couple, Tennessee and Kentucky both swept their series. Uh, Texas A&M got the win over Arkansas after dropping the first game. Same thing with Georgia. They dropped the first game to Auburn, came back and won two of three. And then LSU also two of three over South Carolina. Congrats to Beth Tarina, who picked up win number 600 in game one of that series. So um, ladies, what do you got on the SEC? Well, this weekend, I, I know, Kayla, you and I have talked a lot about Tennessee, and I think that they're the team that kind of flew under the radar to start off the season. But the more games I watch of them, the more of a complete team I really think that they are. Uh, not too many teams across the country can say that they started a different pitcher in each game, and each one of those pitchers went all seven innings. And that's what Tennessee did this past weekend. Ashley Rogers started in game one, went all seven. Then you bring in the, the transfer and Peyton Gottschall to throw game two, and then the freshman to throw game three. And that same freshman, Carlin Pickens, is the same one that just shut out a Clemson team a couple of weeks ago. So from a pitching side, they are so complete. They have those pitchers that really complement each other well with what they throw. They don't give up a lot of free passes. They attack the zone. And a lot of them are strikeout pitchers too. So I think that that helps them kind of get that momentum on their side. And then when you look at the offense, and Kiki Malloy ended up hitting, what, three home runs on the weekend, one of them being a grand slam, one of the most exciting players that you're going to watch across the country because of the way that she covers ground in the outfield, the way that she runs the bases, the way that she's swinging the bat this year. It's not just power to the pole side. It is power opposite field too. 
She's been so impressive. And they're the team that sticks out to me when I think about this SEC uh, conference. Um, but another series, again, that we had our eyes on, too, was that Texas A&M Arkansas series. And Amanda, I know I've been telling you this all year. Watch out for the fighting. Aggies. I think that they are a team that you really need to watch out for going down the stretch. I was surprised that Arkansas put up a seven spot on them in game one. It looked like Emily Kennedy was trying to go to that up pitch a little bit more and Arkansas was ready for it. But the adjustments that ANN made up at the plate in game two and game three, it really started off at the bat of Trinity Cannon with that home run off of Shanice Dells that I think set the tone for the rest of the series. And I know that there were a ton of other games um, and Kayla, you and I uh, talking about how interesting the SEC is going to be going through the rest of the season. Yeah, Tennessee, I, I agree with you there. They're kind of pulling away as the favorite right now. And just like you said, they're a complete team. Um, some other things that, you know, definitely stood out to me. I thought, you know, after Texas A&M did drop game one, I thought Shaylee Ackerman and Emily Levitt were so good in games two and three. Arkansas is such a good hitting team and they did a great job all weekend long pounding the strike zone, getting some big timeouts for Texas A&M. And I think this is the shift of Trisha Ford. They drop game one in run rule fashion, and then you're able to come back, shake that loss off and go and win two games on the road. Vocal Park's a tough place, place to play. It's the first time since 2018 that the Aggies have won their SEC home or not home, but opening series. Uh, so that's a big time accomplishment for that Aggies team. Uh, you know, speaking of other great things I saw, Auburn and Georgia, that was a great series. That was the question we talked about last week. What was going to win out, hitting or pitching? And the Georgia Bulldogs, something sparked in games two and three, and they made an adjustment. Uh, they, they still hit in game one, but I thought their confident swings. Jada Kearney, I mean, her walk-off in game three to win the series, I don't know. Did you guys see it? It, like, cleared the grandstands out in center field. It was a moonshot. I, I mean, and that's what Georgia's going to have to do to win ball games. They're going to have to rely on the long ball. That's their MO. So they've got to sell out for that. I think that's where uh, they're going to have success this season. Um, and I think another big key as an offense, you're always looking to try and see as many pitchers as possible. In game one, Auburn was forced to throw Maddie Penta, Annabelle Redra, and Shelby Lowe. And so just because Georgia was able to see all three of those pitchers in game one. Game one, I think that gave them huge advantages in games two and three and why they were able to win the series. Um, and then shout out, I called the Kentucky-Missouri series this weekend. Shout out to Kentucky, man. Stephanie Schoonover threw two complete games. She had 20, or excuse me, 15.2 innings pitched. She had 25 strikeouts. Missouri didn't score a run the entire weekend. That is a tough offensive weekend, but Kentucky looked really good. Aaron Koppel hit 700 on the weekend, two home runs, seven RBIs. They're a team, I think, that uh, if they can produce runs like that and get the performance from Schoonover, Maddie, I think they're going to be really good. Uh, Maddie, I do have a one quick question for you. Uh, Tennessee, powder the, the Summit Blues, did you like it? I did. I really did like it. I thought that was really cool that they came out with those Summit Blue uniforms. We didn't wear a ton of blue when I was there. It was maybe a little bit on the jersey. So I think it's really cool that they busted out those Summit Blue jerseys. I I, I really like them. And I wanted to tag on one more thing on our conversation about that Georgia-Auburn series. When you watch Georgia swing 
and the way that they make adjustments and how long their barrels stay in the zone. I think that's one of the things that makes their offense so scary to go up against because there's not just one pitch you can get the entire team out on, but they're going to constantly make those adjustments, a bunch of different good swings. Uh, It's going to be a a wild season in the SEC. Yeah. And this weekend, you guys both talked about um, A&M and Georgia. They meet this weekend in college station. So that should be a really interesting uh, series this weekend. Cause they're both coming off of series wins that they lost the first game and then won the last two and coming into the series with momentum, uh, moving to number seven, Michelle, you and I are going to be, um, on Arkansas, Alabama this weekend in Tuscaloosa. We have all three games, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, all three will be on sec network. Um, and Monday night, uh, Patrick Murphy will be mic'd up. Michelle just had the LSU South Carolina series last night on Monday. And Mike up Monday with Bev Smith was so good when she was predicting pitches and talking about swings. Like I thought that last night's was the best Mike up Monday that we've ever had. So we're going to keep it rolling into Tuscaloosa, um, and hope for, um, a little, a few more laughs like that, Michelle, that'll be good. But, um, both teams lost three of four coming into this weekend. So Georgia and A&M, they're feeling good going to their series, Alabama and Arkansas are both kind of limping in both teams looking to get back on track. What are you thinking, Michelle? Well, yeah, it is interesting when you go back and you look at both clubs that, um, you know, their, their ace pitchers have struggled a little bit. I mean, Fouts has been brilliant, but then she's also been pressured and put in situations where she's, you know, trying to come in and relief. And the question is how warm is she? Um, so specifically though, about Alabama is that to me, you know, they just look heavy, like the weight of the world is on them and they don't, they're not playing with that, you know, bubbly, uh, atmosphere that, you know, a lot of times you need now, granted, there's always a time to be super serious, but there's a, you, you have to feel like you're enjoying what you're doing. And I always like to say umpires say play ball, not work ball. And right now, Alabama's looking like the umpire saying work ball, not play ball. Um, I thought it was also interesting when Montana Fouts did come into the game against Wisconsin, that they did not make the catching change. And I think when you are a pitcher like Montana Fouts and you're throwing to a freshman catcher in a pressure situation and the first pitch you throw is a pass ball, I think as a pitcher, it puts you back a little bit. It sets you back. You're afraid to really, you know, rip that rise ball. And trust me, I've been in this situation before where you don't have your everyday catcher and it will affect you. Uh, and the next batter hits a two run shot offer and uh, they end up losing the game. So I think it's important, all those little things that need to come together. So it's chemistry, it's coaching decisions, it's their bats. You know, they need to be able to score more runs to take some pressure off of the pitching staff, off of Montana Fouts, off of Jayla Torrance, off of, you know, the entire pitching staff. So I think that's number one. Number two is the same thing for Arkansas is that I think Arkansas plays a little cleaner defense. Alabama needs to clean up their defense. Arkansas, though, Shanice Stells, you know, she looked really good in game one against Texas A&M and game three A&M was absolutely prepared for her. She didn't go very long and, you know, she gave up a lot of runs, but, you know, I think both these clubs are going to do a lot of homework and a lot of work this week to, to get ready for this series. And, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing some good ball. It's always, always great. Um, when you see this, cause I think there is a, a rivalry between Arkansas and Alabama. What else are you looking for Amanda? Man, so much. I feel like there's just so, so much about this matchup and it's very, really interesting. I'm looking to see who pitches 
this game two for Alabama. I think that that's going to be their question mark, not just this weekend, but throughout the rest of the SEC series. And we know that Montana Fouts is going to pitch game one and game three, but how are they going to handle and manage game two with the rest of their pitching staff? And how often are they going to bring her in for game two and relief? Like we saw in basically every other game that they played this week, that was close. And you mentioned their offense, Michelle, they're playing in these close games, one run games, two run games that go late into the game. And they're leaning on her late in the game a lot. So how is that going to pan out in April and May? And is there going to be an adjustments with how they use the rest of their pitching staff uh, coming up on these SEC weekends? Um, also, I think it's really cool that we could see an SEC pitcher of the year versus SEC pitcher of the year. You just don't get to see that very often in any of the conferences that um, two former conference pitchers of the year, Shanice Dels and Montana Fouts, could, could go up against each other, ace versus ace. So I always think that that's fun because usually, you know, an SEC pitcher will or a, a conference pitcher of the year will graduate or they don't play each other that year or something. So I think that that's going to be really awesome to watch. And I wanted to, to talk about a few of the other matchups that are this weekend uh, across the country. Washington at UCLA is one that 100% sticks out with the way that Jen, you were talking about Washington was hitting the ball and UCLA dropped that game to Cal that game or that series could be interesting. And then Tennessee in Baton Rouge versus LSU total. I mean, that one's going to be so much fun to watch. Um, Oklahoma state has another challenging weekend, Michelle and week they play central Arkansas midweek on the road, then UCF three times at home and Arizona state. Um, and then finally, and I'll let you get in last word here, Stanford at Oregon, uh, Nigeri candidate freshman still hasn't given up an earned run. The, the freshman for Stanford, I should clarify. Go ahead, Michelle. Yeah. 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 She's, she's been outstanding. I'm uh, excited to at some point, hopefully get to see her throw in person. Um, one, uh, record, it's not really, I mean, a record, I guess it's more of a milestone. Um, Montana Fouts is just two strikeouts away from strikeout number 1000 in her career. So, uh, we'll be looking for that, um, in that Arkansas series. So, all right, well, that's a recap of, uh, what not to miss and what to look forward to, uh, coming up in the Alabama Arkansas series. And that's going to roll us down into the eighth spot, which is of course, ladies shagging stats. This week on Shaggin' Stats. All right. Well, since I'm kind of introing it, guess what? I think I'm going to go and, uh, uh, and, and, and throw mine out there first. And I was a little worried when Kayla was talking about uh, Kentucky that she was going to steal my stat, but um, she didn't. And I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about Erin um, Coffold, the way she was just outstanding uh, shortstop for Kentucky. How about a 1,700 slugging? percentage on the weekend. So she hit 700. She had four doubles, a pair of home runs, seven RBI, and uh, she drew five walks and struck out just once in 15 plate appearances. She was uh, outstanding. All right. Who's up next? And hopefully I didn't steal anybody's shagging stat. I'll go next. Amanda already talked about it. Unfortunately, I think she stole half of my nugget. So when it comes to pitching, I know that's not my area. However, Nigeri Kennedy, you mentioned scoreless, but she's been scoreless for 44 consecutive innings. She's a freshman at Stanford. The, the NCAA record was set by Danielle Henderson in her senior year at UMass, and she threw 105 consecutive scoreless innings. So I'm now tracking Nigeri Kennedy to see if she's going to be able to get there. She's about halfway. Who else? Who wants it? Jen? 
Jenny, I'm kind of laughing a little bit because you were a little bit anti-Stanford 20 minutes ago. And then with your stat, you're like getting on their good side again. Uh, I want to give some love to a team outside the Power Five, uh, Wichita State. We talk so often about Kiki Malloy and Maya Brady and T.R.A. Jennings, but Sydney McKinney hitting 580 is leading the country in batting average. And to me, without a without a doubt, is one of the top hitters in the country. So just a little shout out to Sydney McKinney, 580, the nation leader. Kayla, what's your stat, girl? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll say out of the power five too, because I want to shout out Marshall, who's 23, 21 and three on the season. And uh, Autumn Owen leading the way for the herd. She's hitting 507. She has 12 home runs, which is top five in the nation. She's got a 591 on base percentage with 41 RBIs. So they're doing good things in Marshall right now. What about you, Maddie? So I'm actually going to go to the pitching side of things. And Michelle, of course, I was watching that series that you called this weekend and Donnie Goborn coming in for South Carolina. I was really impressed with how hard she throws the ball. I think she's somebody that could really work her way into that closing spot, but she is third in the nation right now. You guys uh, in her called strike and with percentage uh, combination at 37.7%. So 37.7% of the time people are not touching the ball. I was really impressed with the way that she spun it out there. And Maddie, I just want to jump in on Donnie, her eyelashes, man, they are just, whoo, they were beautiful. <laughs> I think the hitters have even been looking at her eyelashes instead of her eyes ball. I don't know what it was, but she was, she was lights out. She was hey, so I'm fun telling you, I wouldn't want to mess with, with whatever she was throwing up there. Cause I, I look at pictures and I go, who do I not want to hit against? And she would definitely be one of those. Oh, she was bringing the heat. She was so much fun to watch. I felt like last night or was kind of, or yesterday. Cause the double header was kind of like her coming out party. Uh, my shagging stat is about Stan. Stanford. They have not given up a run since February, February 26. And they've given up 25 total runs. All of course were in February and 10 of those were to Oklahoma and just the second game of the season. So Stanford's pitching in D something spe special and something to look out for. Anybody all right, finally like, uh, go ahead. Anybody feel yeah. like Stanford uh, fans are going to come after us for jinxing all of these stats this weekend. I feel like uh, we're going to get blown up in our Twitter right now for talking about all these scoreless innings for Stanford. <laughs> Anybody else feel like we have like all these amazing stats and like, but if you took out Oklahoma game, like they would be so much better. <laughs> <laughs> That was Shaggin' Stats. Oh, good times. Okay, going to number nine, uh, opening up the mailbag, we have a couple of questions from the fans. Miss Morinthia says, who has been the best freshman class thus far? What do you guys think? I like that Texas freshman class. I think that they're really impressive. They've got that good combination of speed and they play good defense between Leanne Good and Vimbiana Martinez and uh, even sit Lolly Gutierrez in the circle for them. I've been really impressed with the way that the Texas youngsters have been playing out there. They have a good freshman catcher too, named Reese Atwood, who I know Jen would really like. What, what, what about any other freshman classes here? Well, I, I feel biased for talking about UCLA. So I, I was, was going to just say UCLA as okay, well. I Jen. was keeping so, my so. mouth shut because I thought everyone would just say, there goes Jen talking about UCLA. But I mean, Taylor Tinsley, Megan Grant, like they're really good guys. Michelle, what do you have on them? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, when we saw them in Clearwater, they were starting three or four freshmen and they were hitting back to back to back, maybe in six, seven, eight in the lineup. Um, Megan Grant. Yeah, they, they were outstanding. And I think Taylor Tinsley is a very good pitcher. She it's just hard when you're a freshman to get innings 
in tight games, if your offense isn't scoring you runs and, you know, you might get the hook, but I, I think she is. And, and actually coach, I said it, she's our future. So I, I think we're going to see some, some really big things from her. Yeah. Megan Grant was three for four in that opener. That was just the four Oh win. So she came up in a big way when maybe they're, they're tried and true seniors just weren't getting it done. All right. So there are a couple of freshman class that we went over. Um, A&M has a good freshman class too. Uh, Texas, as you mentioned, Madison and, and Arkansas has some good youngsters too. Um, last question here from Dakota Scarlett. Dakota asks, is the pack race more open this year than expected? What do you think? I'm going to say the pack race definitely is open. When you look at the offensive stats from top to bottom in this conference, every team has a lead in something like Arizona leads in batting average on base percentage runs in RBI ASU leads in home run and slugging percentage Cal leads in doubles UCLA UCLA leads in hits Stanford leads in triples Utah leads in stolen bases Washington is second in runs RBI and double like there's so many offensive stats that are shared throughout the conference and they're going up some really good pitching to do it. So I think this is one of the years that top to bottom, the pack's pretty open. For me, there's legitimately four teams that could win the pack. And I wouldn't be surprised if any of them won Stanford, UCLA, Arizona, or Washington, any of those four teams, in my opinion, could legitimately win out this conference. Kayla, what do you think? Yeah. I just think that what we're seeing from the pack 12, it's going to make things more interesting. And gives the nod to it being more open. I think the bottom's better this year. Utah swept Oregon State, who's a Women's College World Series team from a year ago. So if you have teams at the bottom, like Cal, like Utah, that can pull upsets, that can go out and beat some teams, that's where it gets interesting. Because UCLA, if they really want to have the green light to win the Pac-12, they needed to sweep Cal this weekend, and they didn't. So all of those bottom-tier teams that kind of mix things up are going to be the key on whether or not somebody like a UCLA can just easily get through the conference. So what I'm hearing is you guys all think that the Pac-12 is the best conference in softball right now, top to bottom. That's what mm. I heard from Kayla. <laughs> I don't know if I said that exactly, but I, I I think it would be really close between them and the SEC for sure. Tops, the Big 12. Everybody knows that. Depth. I might have to give the, I, I'm getting into this, but I might have to give the nod to the SEC because there's 13 teams, 13 teams, nine in the top 25. That's tough. Well, and their RPI is not affected either when they get into conference play. I think that's a big part that goes into play as you go through your season. If your RPI is affected in conference play, it's a struggle at the end of the year. The SEC doesn't have that problem. The Pac-12 doesn't have that problem. But some of those other conferences really struggle because the depth of their conference isn't where it needs to be. Pac-12 has it. SEC has it. I know, Jenny, you were talking about the home runs earlier. I think the SEC is up to 346 home runs, I believe, already on the season. So, yeah, SEC can. So anybody else have the gut feeling, though, that UCLA is going to hit their stride when we get into the C? I, I, the, something about the depth in, that UCLA has, like, that's just. Jen does. I Jen actually, 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 I don't. I don't, I don't, I'm, surprised. I, I'm not, I'm not feeling it yet at this weekend's alumni weekend. They got to play Washington. Washington is tough. I think this weekend, I think it was Amanda who mentioned it is going to be, we're going to know the answer to your question after this weekend, Maddie. Yeah. And they play Washington, as you mentioned, they've got Oregon uh, the following weekend. So it will definitely be interesting. I think, uh, you know, the power fives, we talk a lot about them, but I, I think uh, the, the other 
consideration is just how good some of these mid-major teams are and how well they are playing. And guess what? Some of them, a Texas State, Lehigh, Louisiana, I mean, some of them, Wichita State, I could go on and on. They show up at your regional. You could be in for a big surprise. Yeah, right, I wanted ladies. to give a, a yeah. shout out to Jessica Mullins pitching for Texas State, yes. how well she's been throwing the ball so far this season. Yeah, she got some uh, well-deserved accolades um, this week after some big wins at uh, at Texas. So, all right, ladies, well, really good episode. Got some great nuggets in all the way around. Um, appreciate everyone working hard and uh, updating all of our fans. You can follow us at Seven Innings Podcasts on the Twitter and Instagram. And uh, we appreciate you following us on the road to the Women's College World Series. 